Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The distant barking of dogs follows a 10-year-old Ukrainian boy by the name of Oleg, whose life has been turned upside down by the ongoing war in eastern Ukraine. He lives with his grandmother Alexandra in a village called Nutrava in the eastern part of Ukraine. This beautifully observed film follows him, Oleg, for, his, for a year and, and emphasizes the warm bond be- with his grandmother Alexandra by sticking close to Oleg the distant barking of dogs shows the effect of conflict on children. It is a remarkable film, a remarkable documentary, and we're very fortunate to have with us today uh, the producer, Monica Hellstrom, as well as the director, Simon Larang Wilmont. To both of you, Monica and to Simon, welcome to Film School. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. The film is... Uh, about as intimate a uh, documentary as you will see. It uh, it is in in some of the most dire kinds of conditions. You are basically you have placed yourself as well as so many of the people in the eastern part of the Ukraine in this unbelievably intense situation where there's no declared war, but there's every other aspect of war in play, and then in this village it is on the front line of what is happening in the Ukraine. I want to start, before we get into the story of Oleg and Alexandra, a little bit about the situation as you understand what's happening in the Ukraine, at least during the, during the production of this documentary. You, do, you, do you understand, Simon? I'm trying I'm to do, sort of the, the geopo- uh, geopolitical, without getting too deep into all of that, but just the sort of the bare bones yeah. understanding for people who don't really know what's going on there. What would you tell them about this yeah. situation? Yeah, I think, I think the whole conflict started, uh, I can't remember exactly when, but I think it was 2014, mm-hmm. where Ukraine uh, was having an election uh, uh, where they were supposed to to take a step closer to Europe, uh, trade wise and region wise, um, there was a lot of Russian pressure for them to go in the exact opposite uh, direction, um, and uh, a lot happened. And the, the the president had to to flee the country, and a new president was elected. But there was still a lot of uh, of, of um, how do you say um, uncertainty in, into which direction uh, the country would go. Uh, and after a lot of protests uh, from each side, it ended up with uh, some pro-separate, uh, um, pro-Russian separatists uh, in the eastern part of the country, wanting to to uh, to join Russia instead of uh, Ukraine, and and then the the conflict erupted down at at, uh, at the Crimea, mm-hmm. which the Russians uh, annexed, uh, um, and that made everything spark up and uh, in a some months, there was a, a full-blown conflict uh, between the pro-Russian separatists and the Ukrainian army, uh, and that's died down now to kind of like a stalemate between two forces uh, along a, I think it's roughly 400-kilometer-long uh, uh, front line in the eastern Ukraine. Okay. 
Thank you for providing that. I, because, I, as I said, I think a lot of people just have the vaguest sort of impression and understanding of what's going on. That They understand that there's a Russian involvement. And and this this is a conflict that has laid bare the sort of sectarian lines of there is a more pronounced Russian, ethnic Russian presence in the eastern part of the Ukraine than there is in the central and western part of the Ukraine. So there's exacerbation of these sort of uh, tribal tensions between, uh, and as well as the political part of what you were talking about. Um, I want to ask you, Simon, as far as getting to know the family, getting to know Oleg and Alexandra and others in that family, how did you come into contact? What was this sort of situation that presented itself to you to get involved in their lives? Well, actually, uh, the whole project started because uh, before this film, I made two short documentaries with kids from Western parts of the world, and both of these documentaries was about a kid who had a very safe life, and that life was not temporarily out of balance, and the kid would get that balance back. Uh, but while doing the second one of these films, it occurred to me that there's so many children living in the exact opposite world, you know, where all of their daily life is filled with turmoil and chaos and uncertainty. And I got interested in finding out where do you go as a kid in that very impressionable age to get that sense of security or at least a semblance of, of, of stability in your life when your daily life is in the conflict zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that led, led me to Ukraine. Um, and uh, I do my own filming and I do my own research. So, so what we did was that we went down the southern part of the front line me and my fixer, um, and we went into a lot of public schools uh, and asked, you know, just on our bare faces if we could see uh, any uh, kids uh, who, who came from villages that was either shelled or close to shelling. Uh, and they were very uh, uh, forthcoming, and we met a lot of kids. And, you know, in the end of each meeting, I would always ask the kids, you know, can you, can you try to describe to me um, how it feels like when you're afraid? because that gives me a really good sense of, of, of um, how well the, the kid can articulate its feelings. And, and, and actually, not a lot of the kids could actually put those feelings into words um, until I met Oleg. And, you know, I, I, I still remember to this day the situation. We'd come to his house. It was a cold winter day, and he was very, you know, interested in me from the very beginning. You know, I was kind of like an alien in his world. Uh, and I, we sat down and we made the interview, and in the end I asked him, you know, can you describe to me how it feels like when you're afraid? And then he looked at me with those ice blue eyes and hesitated maybe for half a half feet. And then he said, okay, imagine, you know, when the guns go off near my house, it's like this, this invisible cold hand that reaches into my chest and grabs my heart. Mm-hmm. And when the impact starts, you know, start to boom, the hand squeezes for each impact, um, until my heart feels like it's just cold and little. Um, that's roughly how I feel like when I'm afraid. And then he chuckled a little bit. And I just, you know, I knew from there on, you know, I, I, I found my main character. Amazing. What a great story. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's appropriate to what this film is about so much. So much of that is relevant to what this film is about. Uh, let me ask you, Monica yeah. Hellstrom, um, how did you get involved? I know that you and Simon uh, are part of a production company called uh, Final Cut for Real. Is Tell me a little bit about how you got into, uh, as a producer of the film, The Distant Barking yeah. of Dogs. I, uh, I, I work, this is uh, me and Simon's third film, so I produced Simon's previous two films, 
where we did uh, where he followed two different children. So uh, and then he talked about wanting to do the film about the children living in war zones, and I became very interested because I knew how how good he was at filming children and making it from like their perspective. And I thought this could be a really strong story to tell for Simon. So that's how how we started. And we've kind of like grown it with each other. Hand in hand, we started out being really, you know, green behind the ears, and, and and then we've made a lot of, of of projects together, and then slowly stepped up together. Yeah, well, so it's a strong and a good relationship. <laughs> yeah, well, that's beautiful. That's beautiful, and I just as a sort of an observation, one of the things that I found over the years of interviewing directors and producers as well is that often, not always, but often, the really accomplished directors, whether it be in the documentary film world or in the narrative film world, will build a community, a village of people around them uh, that help, that they come to rely on f- over multiple films. And I think that's just such a, a wonderful mm-hmm. testament. And it's one of the great things about filmmaking, I, I have found, is that the, the people accumulate uh, people around them that they're, that they... It's almost becomes telepathic at some point. You know what they want. They know what you're about, and and it's and it's a wonderful thing. It, it, just it, we'll get to the sort of the. I want to talk with Monica as well about sort of the the raising money for a project like this, uh, because this is not a film that screams box office. You know, it's not a film that if you saw the the the, the tagline on it, you wouldn't think, well, that's going to make a lot of money. So in terms of just sort of putting together a film project like this, Monica, are, do you have, mm-hmm. how do you go about sort of selling this to not only to funders, but also distributors? I'm just very curious because it's a beautiful film and that's certainly a big part of being able to sell a, a film like this. But tell me what goes into your part of the part of this uh, project in terms of getting the money and also being able to sell it to distributors and such. Mm. Well, we, we started with, with going back to uh, a funder in Denmark at the Danish Film Institute that funded uh, Simon's previous films, um, and and we got support there for development. And then we went on to working with our partners in Sweden uh, and got money from uh, the Swedish Film Institute and, and from uh, Finland as well. So we actually had a really good basic uh, support from the Nordic countries to start with. And then I think it became very clear that Simon had found an amazing, uh, I mean, first of all, that he's a very strong uh, storyteller, and he found this amazing character that could just, you know, get the story across in a very obvious way. Uh, so we are very fortunate to get um, uh, Sundance on board as well with support and uh, and the Nordic Film TV Fund. So actually the film is really well supported mm. in terms of like the really big funds. And we had Arte uh, from France uh, and Germany on board as well. So in terms of like uh, distribution and funding, it, it was very well supported from from Europe. But of course in in America, North America, it's, uh, it's a bit tougher because it's further away from the conflict. People don't really know about the Ukrainian-Russian conflict and um so it, it has it it has taken more work to yeah. to to get it across uh, but we have some very strong partners all over here yeah. in the u.s that's well, been helping yeah. us and then of course we're working with our sales agent 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Sundance. It did very well at Sundance. I believe it won the Special Grand Jury Prize. Correct me if I'm wrong for World Cinema. No, it didn't. It, oh. It, um, it wasn't screened at Sundance, but we got Sundance support. Oh, okay. My, 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 my mistake. Okay, well, and th- this is the difference. There's a sort of a distinct difference in in its, and I hear it all the time, in Canada, that the there's so much more uh, financial opportunities for filmmakers. The 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 government, there's a government subsidy. They help support films. And you you mentioned yeah. in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Scandinavian countries. Uh, again, another place where it seems that there's, there's a, r- a robust support for filmmakers in what they do. And that's not yeah. the case here in the United States. It's really a much tougher slog, although there are a lot of great foundations and grant opportunities to have that sort of built-in support that's coming from support of the artistic community from your government is, is a, that's a wonderful thing, I think. It's a tremendous, mm. a tremendous thing. Well, let's go back Simon, let's go back to you embedding yourself with this family, uh, with Oleg and Alexandra, and, and for this year that you were with them, this time you were with them. Um, curious about sort of the process that you were able to, or what was the process like for you to become essentially part, some part of their family, and sort of the just how that worked for you? Because you're the cinematographer, I failed to mention, you're in addition to the director, you're the cinematographer on this project. And I assume you're probably the only one who shot film on this. So yeah. how was that for you? How were they? Well, I, think that you're actually, I think you're actually touching upon some of the, one of the, of the aspects of, of how it's possible to get that close to people. Because if I had a huge crew, I, I know it, it would pose a, a different set of uh, of, of uh, challenges, so to speak. But but doing my own filming, it's just me and a translator, and most of the time the translator is not even there. So so getting close to Oleg and Alexandra, that's my job and my job alone. So it's, it's, um, and it's a two it's it's two different kind of approaches. One is is for the for the child, and another one is for the adult, and it's two different kind of kinds of gaining that you know life essential trust that you need to be led that deeply into people's lives, I think. Yeah. And for Oleg, uh, um, I think in a lot of ways their life reminded me of my own, except I didn't grow up in a war zone, but, but, but still I could identify with a lot of the things that they were doing when they were just hanging out. And, and to me it became, it was, it was actually a really nice thing to hang, hang out with them, and I really enjoyed it. And I think they can feel that too. I was doing the same things that they were doing. You know, if they were doing slingshots, I would, I would, you know, challenge them for, for, for to who could shoot the bottles, the first, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, in essential, it's just hanging out with them, doing the same things as, as they do. And then at some point, I say to them, you know, uh, for the next hour, pretend like I'm just a ghost. I'm not here. And they would always, you know, uh, uh, look into the camera, even though I expressly asked them not to. Uh, but only for the first. 10 minutes maybe and I learned that if I just you know endured those 10 minutes then whoop I become the boring adult and then they turn to each other and say okay what should we do now and that's when the magic happens uh, with the kids when they have their own will and they, they you can just you accept it as one of them but but you can you know they're doing their own thing um, that's Oleg and his uh, his um, 
his guys. But with Alexander, it's a completely different story because at that time, at the, at the front line in those small villages, there was a very persistent rumor that there were people posing as NGOs uh, who were actually there to steal organs from children. So she was very wary of us in the beginning. I didn't know this because I don't speak Russian, but, but, but my fixer and her had a lot of conversations about that. And we were trying to gain her trust. And it, uh, I don't think it was until the third trip or something like that when somebody sent her a, an MMS, of, a picture of, of me and the interpreter sitting eating some kind of slop lunch at the local school where she was like, no, no, people won't go through that much of an ordeal, <laughs> you know, to, 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 to gain trust. And, yeah. and then she started opening a little bit up to us and and I'm not a journalist I don't use you know uh, um, I don't use interviews in my films but I learned you know that she kind of expected me to do interviews because that's what in her mind you know journalists do so we set up these kind of interviews and in in a certain way I think it became a way for us to become closer for me it was very good because I could get an update on, on what was happening in, in a kind of formal way but for her I think it was super crucial that she doesn't have anybody really to talk to. But in these interviews, there was, you know, this this golden opportunity for her to just unload everything, yeah. all her worries yes. and all her, her, her fears and, and everything. And so it became maybe something that she really enjoyed and, and she could see we were interested and that kind of, that leads into, you know, trust and, and, and her opening up and it was wonderful. There are some dan- there are some genuinely dangerous situations in this film. Genuinely frightening. No kidding. Uh, uh, you know, a shell could land right where you're standing at any moment, given the proximity to the to the front lines that you were in. And okay. and and you're right. I think this sort of this situation that you're that you found yourself in, and and Olog and uh, Alexander find themselves in is a situation that tests your psychological health every day. And, and with that, along with that comes insight into life that at an accelerated rate, certainly for Oleg. Alexander's lived a long life. She understands what's going on, and she's such a wonderful protector and mentor and all the things that you would yeah. want in a grandmother or in any parent or any guardian. And so it's a, it's just such a wonderful, on that level, the love for each other. and the, the it's, a, it's just a beautiful thing to watch in that regard. Before I go any further, just uh, I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Simon Lorraine Wilmont, and he is the director of the film The Distant Barking of Dogs, as well as Monica Hellstrom, who is also the producer of The uh, Distant Barking of Dogs. For people who are interested in finding out more about The Distant Barking of Dogs, they can go to finalcutforreal.dk. That's that's one way, and that'll take you to that. And then you also mentioned you have a Facebook page, and I would assume facebook.com. What's the rest of it? The distant barking of dogs. That seems logical. Okay. Final cut. I mean, final cut. Sorry. Facebook.com backslash the distant barking of dogs. The film has received a tremendous amount of acclaim. Uh, you've won a, a lot of awards in, in the European film festival circuit, continues to garner acclaim here in the United States, and it's well-deserved. For you and for uh, Simon and for Monica, the two of you, what has this meant, not only for you personally, but what is what do you feel like this is 
a means for the film and and the opportunity for people to see it. I'll start with you, Monica. Well, I think it's uh, it's very important that people uh, get get to know about the film, and I think this has been a great way with being shortlisted that all this attention has uh, come to the film. So hopefully you'll get a big, big push over here in America for for it being screened around. Yeah. Simon, just personally, I imagine this has been such a yeah, a, a project of passion. Of you, you've invested so much of yourself in this film. It must feel pretty good to get the attention it's getting. Listen, you know, every time I do something, I do a film. It's more like in, while I'm making the film, I feel like if I'm in a bubble and. That bubble ends, you know, after usually some very tough nights in, in the sound room or something like that. And, and you say, okay, it's done, now it's, it's, it's finished. And then there's this brief period of silence where you don't know how the world will actually react to your film. And to me, it's been like a storm for the last maybe one and a half years almost. And it's been amazing. It's been quite the ride, I would say. Uh, but most importantly, I think, you know, I've, I've been allowed to document a, a very vulnerable and a very uh, fantastic uh, part of Oleg and Alexandra's life. And, yeah. you know, for the world to see that part of their life, that brings me, you know, such, such happiness on their part also. Well, I hope they are safe and I hope they're doing well. And I hope that this brings attention not only to the situation in eastern Ukraine, which is dire, which is terrible. People are suffering every day, mm. whether or not it's a, 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 a hot war or a cold war. The people of this region are in dire conditions. They live in difficult conditions anyway, and you throw into it the, the dogs of war, uh, then you have a, a, a tragic situation. But Oleg and Alexander are wonderful messengers, vehicles to, to convey this message that there is humanity, and even, even with their struggles, that humanity comes for comes through in the film. Uh, it's a beautiful relationship. It's a it's a wonderful film, and I my congratulations to both of you for your work here. It's just tremendous. And, and thank thanks you for having us on the show. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you again. The we've been speaking with the director and producer of the film, The Barking of Distant Dogs. That would be the director Simon Lorraine Wilmont, as well as the producer Monica Hellstrom. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.